Welcome back, everybody, to the Wellness at the Speed of uh, Light podcast. Uh, I'm honored and privileged today uh, to be with actually one of my partners, a world-famous uh, neurosurgeon, and I don't say that lightly, uh, Dr. Eric Nussbaum uh, is joining us today. We're going to talk about a ton of things, but before that, I'd like to do my best to give him a proper introduction. And so his resume is really too long. We could be here all day just talking about all the things that he's done, but he's got 125 papers in peer-reviewed publications. He's got 100 uh, presentations uh, that he's done and 75 poster presentations, both nationally uh, and internationally. He uh, went to Johns Hopkins for uh, undergraduate and then off to the University of Maryland for medical school. Following that, he went to the illustrious uh, University of uh, Minnesota uh, and then off to uh, the uh, University of uh, Western Ontario, which I'm going to ask you about later. He's the author of the uh, video Atlas of Intracranial Neurosurgery, which is, uh, I believe, translated in 17 languages. No one hold my feet to the fire on that. I really tried to do a deep dive. It's hard. It's in so many languages. Here is an example of uh, one of the copies of his book. Uh, in uh, Chinese. Here's another uh, book, uh, Cerebral uh, Revascularization, uh, Microsurgical and Endovascular uh, Techniques, among other things uh, that he has uh, uh, written. We're really excited to have him uh, here today. We're going to talk about a range of topics from neurosurgery uh, to his interest in concussion, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depression, anxiety, and other things, and I'm really proud uh, to have someone here who is not only a famous neurosurgeon, but also has gotten into the wellness space, which I've gone down that rabbit hole now for the last couple of years, and when we started talking about it, I was really shocked because I didn't know that about you. It's not something that's kind of readily out there, you know, and available for, for people to learn about. So I think, I think people are going to learn a lot about kind of your thinking in some of these other, you know, spaces. And so it should be really, really interesting talk. So on that note, what I would start with is you're a neurosurgeon. Your specialty is vascular and base of skull. How did this all happen? Well, I really wanted to be a neurosurgeon for as long as I could remember. Uh, my uncle was a neurosurgeon, and he was really an inspiration to me. Uh, the opportunity to help people in general. And thinking about medicine as just the most noble profession has always been a part of my, my thinking. Uh, within neurosurgery, when I was training, for sure, vascular and to a lesser degree, skull-based neurosurgery, they were really the ultimate frontier. It was the most challenging surgery, and it just captivated my attention. Uh, many of my mentors, some of the people who really, really influenced me, um, this was their interest, and I think that had a profound effect. And it's uh, just been uh, wonderful to be, um, you know, to be able to to help people with really, really complicated problems. I don't want to put you on the spot, but would there be one person that you would consider? your biggest mentor or your biggest hero on the journey to becoming a vascular neurosurgeon or skull base or, or a doctor for, for, for that matter? Sure. I mean, I already mentioned my uncle, obviously. That's, that's more personal. Right. But, um, Dr. Drake, Charles Drake, uh, who was the chair in uh, London, Ontario, at the University of Western Ontario, who I was privileged enough to spend some time with, 
he's really the father of modern brain aneurysm surgery. Uh, just an unbelievably wonderful person, the most down-to-earth person you could ever meet. Um, incredibly encouraging. Uh, and at the same time, that's juxt juxtaposed um, on a figure who did things that nobody had ever done. Unbe unbelievably courageous in the operating room. And uh, just the most wonderful person in the world. So you put those together. And I, I think I just took so much away from him uh, after my experience there. That's wonderful. Um, what would you say, and again, hard to choose because of the intricacies of what you do, and, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen thousands of, of, of complex uh, cases. And by the way, I'd just like to let the audience know that you've done 2,000 aneurysm surgeries and you've done 1,000 plus base of skull surgeries in addition to something called a brain bypass surgery, which is uber complex. In your years of practice, is there a patient that maybe is your most memorable patients or one of your most memorable patients or in your in your top five, something that we can share with the audience to kind of get a sense of of how dire a situation can be and, and potentially how your specialty can get people out of that situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would be fun. We could sit here and do a whole a whole day about some of the great and amazing cases that I've been privileged, privileged really to be a part of. You know, one that comes to mind is uh, a young man who was out hunting with his family and he was actually shot in the eye. And what was really interesting about this case is if you think about it, right behind the eye is the carotid artery. The carotid artery is bringing blood supply from the heart up through the neck to reach the brain. And in this case, the, uh, the bullet or the, the BB, the pellet, actually went through the eye, through the eye socket, punctured the carotid artery. And believe it or not, this is kind of a one in a million type of situation. It actually traveled inside the carotid artery up to its main branch, the middle cerebral artery going to the brain and lodged there, blocking blood supply to the brain. So the child essentially presented with stroke symptoms in the middle of the night. He was blown down from the Dakotas. And first we had to figure out what was going on. It wasn't that of obvious course. what was happening. Um, and we ended up, uh, because the interventional neuroradiologist that I work with couldn't go up and pull the bullet out. Sometimes they can actually pull it out, like they could pull a clot out or something like that. They couldn't get it out. And so we ended up doing an emergency brain bypass surgery, which you had mentioned, where we actually bring new blood blood supply up to that part of the brain. And we people always ask, did you take it out? Did you take the, the bullet out? And uh, the answer is no. So you have blood flow coming up to reach the mm -hmm. point where the bullet is, and then you have blood flow, new blood flow through the channel that we created. Child did spectacularly well, essentially it's fully normal. And um, all of his symptoms reversed. And so that was an amazing case. There's nothing more rewarding than, you know, when patients tell a physician, you saved my life. I wouldn't even be on this earth if it wasn't for you. So how do you, how do you feel like, you know, when you, when you hear those things? You know, mostly humbled. Um, I think you're in the right place at the right time. Um, in some ways, I like it better when the patients don't necessarily even realize how dire the situation was. I mean, they're appreciative to be in good shape, but sometimes, you know, you walk out of the room and think, you know, they don't understand how close it was for them. And that's probably a good thing uh, in some ways. But 
yeah, mostly appreciative and humbled. And I agree with you. That's what recharges you and keeps you going, um, you know, to, to come back and do it again. Oh, absolutely. Because that just shot in the arm that you get from something like that, that keep, keep you going for years. Thanks for sharing, you know, that, that, that with us. We're going to kind of shift a little bit and talk about some of the more, you know, holistic kind of things that you're doing to try to make a difference on fronts that are periphery, peripherally related to neurosurgery, but not necessarily what a typical neurosurgeon is diving into and, it, and is spending his time on. Um, before we get to that, though, um, I'm going to ask you the question that I'm going to ask most of the people when they sit in the hot seat here. Have you experienced sort of kind of what I've experienced, and that is a frustration with seeing how overall we're managing kind of preventative care and looking at patients and then some of these diseases that do develop? Are you frustrated as I am in the fact that we focus so much on medication management and surgeries and other things. Obviously, without some of the medications that we give people and surgeries, patients are going to, they're not going to live. However, outside of that, for some of these more chronic things, are you frustrated in, in how we're approaching things? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that the system is broken. Uh, you know, one thing that you alluded to uh, that I, I think is really interesting is both deal with really complicated medical issues, which we treat typically with surgery. Right. And um, we rely heavily on technology, rapidly evolving technology. And I think it's something that probably we both find very interesting watching that at the same time. Um, I think it's interesting that we're, we come to a similar place. And I suspect, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that part of that is because I can do a surgery, I can repair someone's brain aneurysm, I can take out their, their skull base tumor, their meningioma, or their acoustic neuroma. And at the end of it, the great part about it is, you know, they're cured. Oftentimes, they're fixed. They can go on and live their life. Um, you can do a big spine surgery, and you've corrected a problem. But then what I noticed more and more was patients coming back to me and saying, well, thank you, but I don't feel great. I, I don't have the energy that I... Bingo. Or I don't have the focus. Or I still have headaches. They came in, their aneurysm was diagnosed because they were having headaches or because they were feeling mentally not as sharp as they used to. Can fix that. And yet, they still have the original problem. And so for a while, you know, it's like, well, that's it. That's what I have to offer you. Um, but then it started to occur to me that there's got to be something more. Um, there's got to be something that we're missing or something that we can do to help these people more than that so that we're not just treating an x-ray. We're not just treating, you know, a tumor. Important, don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing the importance of what we do with surgery, but are we taking care of the patient? Are we really making them better, getting them to be the best place where they can? And I think the answer with traditional modern medicine is most of the time not. That really is a a great answer but in all seriousness like i've been really really blessed to have built a, a very large practice and and it's been great i've seen thousands of patients and unfortunately what has really bothered me really from day one but i didn't do anything about it because i was too busy becoming 
a busy, you know, orthopedic spine surgeon and worrying about sick patient after sick patient after sick patient, medicationless after medicationless, and you nailed it with that what you said. I don't feel good. And I know that when we first had this discussion many, many months ago, just randomly at a, at a company event, I was like, you know, I wanted to give you a hug because you're just talking about all these things. And I'm like, wow, this is the guy that, you know, I need to be, you know, talking to because just kind of similar minded. And I found that a lot of physicians now are reaching out to me directly. I just had an endocrinologist reach out to me last night, say, love all the things you're doing. How can we partner? He's big into weight loss, wants to get involved in this movement or whatever, you know, whatever we're trying to do here. On that note, let's go into, into the concussion problem. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so my kind of expertise at concussion was only the reading I've done, you know, things I've done in medical school, and then the fact that as orthopedic surgeons, many times we're asked to cover sidelines, and so we need to know enough about concussion to evaluate it, to send them to the right people. But my first question is, what's your sense of how big the concussion problem is? Let's just say in in, in our country, obviously it's a, it's a worldwide problem, but how how big is the problem numbers wise? Is there something like official out there, or, is, or are we just guesstimating? I think we're guessing at this point. I think the problem's a lot bigger than what we realize, especially as uh, you know, youth sports, teenage sports has become more popular and also more aggressive. I think at the same time that we're realizing some of the long term consequences of head injury and concussion. Uh, and those have become more popular, especially through professional athletes, through football players, boxers, that type of thing. Uh, we're also at the same time recognizing that there are consequences to even minor closed head injury, a minor concussion, repeated concussion. These types of problems are way underestimated. And you know why? Again, it gets back to the fact that we don't really, we don't look at it. Modern medicine doesn't look at it, doesn't address it, doesn't have easy and obvious answers for it. And so it goes by the wayside. You know, I read a study, really interesting study. And so if you ask coaches, athletic trainers, that, that kind of thing, how many of your players have had a concussion? And one study is about 5%. Then you ask the players, have you had a concussion? And you use the term concussion. It went up by like 3 to 12, 15%, something like that. So it was a lot more. But the really fascinating thing, and exactly what you brought up about like what we're missing, is then they asked the players, hey, do you have these symptoms? They didn't say the word concussion. They just said, hey, do you have this symptom? Are you forgetful? Are you irritable? Are you having trouble sleeping? 47% had concussion symptoms. They just didn't know that it was a concussion symptom. They just thought it was related to whatever stress, anxiety, whatever else they were going through. So it's really fascinating you know, to, to, to think about how much concussion is out there and how much we're missing because there sometimes can be some stigma for those kids. They don't want anybody to know that they've had it because everybody knows now about the second impact syndrome and, and you know, and all these things say they don't talk about it. But another stigma that, that's been out there is that people who have been diagnosed with, with what is considered a mild TBI, right? And these things are hard to grade. Um, they are often stigmatized when they continue to have symptoms because they're just like, oh, it's mild. Why haven't you recovered? What, what's your thought on that, like a mild TBI? Can you just kind of educate our audience as to how a mild TBI can be a significant long-term problem? The first thing that we have to recognize is that as physicians, we 
we're really not good at diagnosing and working with conditions that we can't uh, diagnose with objective measures, with objective evidence, so that if you do a, an x-ray of the skull and you see a skull fracture, so then we see that. Correct. And we know that there's a high impact there, and we worry a lot about that. If you do a CAT scan and we see a skull fracture or we see bleeding, whether it's outside the brain or you know, hopefully not, but occasionally we see um, bleeding inside the brain. So then we have that. We have an objective measure. MRI is an even more sensitive test to look for changes within the brain itself than CAT scan often. The problem is that when you have a mild injury to the brain, most of the time we don't see anything on plain x-ray, on CAT scan, or on MRI. And so then we don't know what to do with that. But we have to understand that that doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong or there's nothing going on. That's just the limit of what we can image. Today, uh, in the last decade, we're looking at other types of imaging, but it's really not widespread in use. It's more experimental or investigational, I should say. We can look at functional imaging. So there are things like functional MRI. You can have somebody who has a totally normal MRI scan after a head injury, but then when we do functional MRI, which actually looks at the way the parts of the brain are talking to each other, we can see that maybe the frontal and the temporal lobes or the deep frontal connections are not normal. So if you go back, I mean, 20 years before we were really using functional MRI at all, we would have said that that person was really normal. And, you right. know, again, person might be complaining of symptoms and they might get marginalized or stigmatized, or maybe you believe them, but we don't know what to do with it. Right. You don't know. I mean, worst case scenario, the person is blamed for malingering. They're faking it. There's a secondary gain, for example. Best case scenario, you find a compassionate or empath empathetic physician who says, I believe there's something going on, but I don't know how to help you. Even taking it to the next level, we have metabolic imaging, which is coming on the scene. And it's hard to know what we're going to find with that, but you start to look at things like the neurotransmitters, right. amino acids, what's going on in the brain itself. Even if the connections look okay, has, the, has there been an impact on the way the brain is actually working on a micro level, something we've really never looked at before? So I guess that's a long-winded answer, which reflects the yep. fact that I, do, I can tell you that many of these people have something going on and we're getting better at trying to figure out what that is, which will allow us to help. But as of now, because we're so bad at understanding what's happening, the best thing I think we can do is recognize the fact that we don't really know what's going on. And so we have to try to figure out ways the best we can to help these people. But certainly, mild head injury, mild concussion, there's a lot of stuff that's happening you know, in the person's brain. As evidenced by, you know, as you mentioned, the mm -hmm. second hit yes. syndrome. You have a person, the classic example is it came from boxing years ago where somebody would take a hit and they get up and they're fine the second hit and they, and they die. We've seen right. that. Or yes. something terrible happens. Um, I wish I could give you more definitive answers. I think what, what we have to recognize is that there's a lot we don't know. That's an excellent answer. And I think it's easily understandable. Wanted to get into the, into the mechanism of, and, and potentially one of the ways that, that you can target and improve traumatic brain injury. There's a lot of um, work out there that is really showing that a lot of these diseases, okay, and or post-injury scenarios are really a mitochondrial dysfunction. One of the things I read um, 
was that you get that shearing of the cells in the brain and that sets off like an immediate cascade, right? And it and it injures the wall of the mitochondria. And immediately like those the the channels, not to get too, you know, into into depth, they basically open up and you get this influx of calcium and now you've got this crazy spiral of events going on and you get a lot of mitochondrial dysfunction because they can't do anything. They're the powerhouse of the cell for people that don't know mitochondria found in, in all cells and they cannot function well. And so mitochondrial targeting may be one of the ways that we can help people, not just with you know concussion, but with so many different diseases out there, including like, for example, like Alzheimer's and some of these neurodegenerative things, there's a lot of work being done on mitochondrial dysfunction. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's heading in the right direction. You know, again, um, what I was talking about was the fact that, you know, we can look at this from a macro level and then from a micro level. On the macro level, we're very good. Or, you know, we've got that down. We know if there's a, a subdural hematoma, a, a right. blood clot on the outside of the brain, pushing on the brain, we can diagnose that, we can treat it, we know what we're doing. The problem is really that we haven't been able to devote the time, the research, the money, the funding to fully understand what's going on at the cellular level, at the mitochondrial level is what you're talking about. Right. Um, I mentioned neurotransmitters. Um, you know, you start looking at, at, at proteins, at enzymes, at how the proteins are being encoded, right. holding these types of things. Mm -hmm mitochondria. This is what we need to be looking at. You know, there was research being done 25, 30 years ago, what we call looking at microdialysis or the chemical composition of within the brain after uh, head injury and other types of injury to the brain. And, you know, the research kind of, kind of it just, I, I hate to say it, the research really died. Ideas like what you're talking about with mitochondria, you're opening up the door to a lot of new and interesting and provocative treatments, which seem to be helping people. Maybe they're working through the mitochondria. That's fantastic. Maybe they're working through another mechanism. Right. I, do, I don't think we know quite enough, but I think the question, the questions that are being asked are the right questions. Um, let's try to understand what's going on at the cellular level in a patient who has a mild closed head injury. You know, I get asked these questions sometimes. I'm not a trauma expert, right, in, in my clinical practice, but you see somebody who um, had a traumatic injury, when can I go back to playing again? When can I go back to football? When right. can I go back to this? Honestly, we're making it up. I mean, we don't know. We're not sophisticated enough to differentiate between two people, one of whom had a mild closed head injury, and maybe there's something going on at their cellular level, at their mitochondrial level, and another person who, who's really actually pretty good, but complaining of some similar problems. So, you know, we have generalized guidelines from looking at a lot of people in terms of what would be safe. But again, it gets back to the fact that we're really not, we're really not treating them the way as physicians. We really want to help people. Right. You know, we really want to get them better. We want to get them feeling better. And so I think we're not sophisticated enough, but I think what you're talking about is taking us in the right direction. Yeah, and so I think on the mitochondrial level, you know that I've become uh, a fairly, um, I wouldn't say a big advocate, but very interested in some of these treatments using red light and infrared therapies. And one of the things that really, really piqued my interest, and, I, and honestly, 
it, it's a it's a really well done study that, that that comes out of a Harvard, and and what they did is that they looked at patients who had what they would consider moderate TBI because they had changes on their brain scans, which was important in that study. But they did a randomized controlled stu uh, study and they compared patients who had sham, so basically they had light, like shining a flashlight on their head, versus having a red light, this specialized red light helmet. And the interesting thing is they and others already knew that transcranial red light therapy or transcranial laser therapy can help with the symptoms. That was known well before that, but that study that came out of uh, that institution in 2021, really it was pivotal because not only did they show the symptoms were dramatically different at six months, and I mean dramatically, mean statistically significant across the board, but they also showed significant improvements in the appearance of their white matter tracks on the, on the MRI scans. One of the, 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 the comments they made is only 3% of that red light actually penetrates the skull, but the red light is then absorbed in the mitochondrial wall and potentially can help to heal. And the question is, if you, sh if, if you get red light on there and it changes the way those mitochondria work and they become more functional over time, it's really fascinating. And I think that opens up an entire new way potentially to look at, at, at treating patients using kind of transcranial red light therapy or transcranial laser therapy, which is another form of that, just a little bit more powerful. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that something that, that, that you think has some potential down the road? Yeah. I mean, I'll say a few things. The first time I heard about red light therapy, pretty skeptical, you know, like if this worked, why haven't we heard more about it? Right. But when you look at it, really very interesting, some very interesting, you know, things come out. You look at near infrared and it does penetrate very well. Correct. And it penetrates the brain very well. And you look at some of the red light therapy and even though not a lot of it penetrates, some of it does. Then you start looking at some of the studies from more serious, more reputable institutions. Correct. Right. And you see that there is something going on physiologically. There are changes going on. There are changes at the cellular level. There are changes at the mitochondrial level. There is an exc excitation that happens with the red light or near infrared spectrum of light. It, it seems that it's, it's doing something. So now we have a physiologic basis for something to be happening. Then you put that together with patients telling you that they're doing better. Correct. And then you have to start to ask questions. And I think that's part of the journey, probably, that, you know, that we're talking about, which is kind of unwinding the way, a little bit the way we think about things and becoming more humble about all the things that we don't understand. So anytime you have something that's non-invasive, you compare it with the idea, there's an idea being thrown around right now for patients with more severe closed head injury doing deep brain stimulation, putting in electrodes into areas of the brain. Sometimes I've seen talking about 12, 16 or more electrodes being passed through the brain. Well, every time you do that, there's a risk of causing bleeding. There's a lot of danger, infections, really bad things can happen. I'm not saying that we should ignore that. There may be great promise there. On the other hand, you compare that with something that's totally non-invasive. So then we have to start to wonder, you know, are there possibilities here? Is there something there? And I'll tell you one thing, just anecdotally, this doesn't, you know, this is just my own personal experience, which is that I went to medical school, you went to medical school. The last time that I talked about ATP and mitochondria, it wasn't in the last 25 years in my clinical practice. It wasn't during my residency 
it wasn't even doing research, you know, as a resident or doing my fellowship. It was in medical school. So there is a disconnect because the people who taught us in medical school, a lot of them were PhDs. Right. Some of them were MD PhDs. They felt it was important for us to understand how mitochondria work. But then we forget it. Correct. Then no one talks about it. Including, I shouldn't say no one, but, you know, traditionally an orthopedic spine surgeon and a neurosurgeon and a cardiac surgeon and a general practitioner, you know, we're so bogged down with a clinic with 10 or 20 Absolutely. patients. And then you're in the operating room and you've got multiple surgeries in a given day and you just want to do your best for those patients. I mean, I, me again, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for you. But really, until now, how many times as a resident or early in your career did you have a serious conversation with another physician about, hey, what's going on with mitochondria? Uh, I'm going to go with zero. Yeah. Knowing what I know and, and having a lot of experience seeing patients, seeing these diseases. It's very different when you're in school and you're learning about something. But then after years of being in practice, you start going back and you start connecting. Oh, boy. Like, these things are really relevant. But now the more I see it, the more I want to get in those deep science textbook and say, hey, this works this way. This I haven't thought about half of this stuff since medical school either. Not half of it. How about 90% of it? Because I'm so busy trying to be the best spine surgeon I can be. But once you get to a certain point and you've, you've seen it, and I don't want to say it's routine. There's nothing routine about what I do or what, what you do. Once you're more comfortable, man, it is. It's just so much fun to go back and learn about these things. So that's the fun part. The more serious part for me is there's such a health crisis, you know, in, in this country. And I see it every single day. And I ask, and I ask them, what are you doing to manage this? How are you being counseled? You know, one more interesting topic that I want to, that I want to ask you about something you might not have, have thought about, but it's really fascinating. I'm doing a lot of research on it now is is this concept of the microbiome and how much it affects the way the brain works. What do you think about changing the microbiome and potentially using that as one of the modalities to help people with concussion or, or post-traumatic stress? I mean, this is a huge topic. Very important. I think, you know, I, I believe we're going to look back 25, 50 years from now and sort of be, be embarrassed by how unsophisticated you know, we are about it. Whether it's going to be an answer for concussion or any specific problem, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about it either, but I'm following the work as it evolves. And, you know, you can't, you, you have to put your head in the sand to not, you know, look at the overwhelming body of evidence that's being accumulated. It could eclipse, you know, some of the other things that we've, we've been talking about as a unifying um, understanding of, of many of the diseases that we treat right now. Um, so super important. I'm really trying to get a sense and, 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 you know, and learn from the best and the brightest, but so interesting, some of the work that's being done right now on, on nutrition and how much nutritional changes can literally change the way the brain works and all the research that's being done, for example, on, you know, major depression and anxiety and all these other things. And, and there are some really serious, you know, proponents. This is a great book right here, Brain Energy, and I, I actually by, by Dr. Palmer, but it's very interesting how they're looking at things like ketogenic diets and going into ketosis 
and how that can change the brain and dramatic impacts they're seeing on neurologic disease and psychiatric disease, a lot of which you know is a, is a huge overlap. And we still don't understand how, like, if these brain cells are not functioning, how does that make a Dr. Nussbaum come in today and, like, throw a book at me because he's just in a bad mood? You know what I mean? Like, we don't really know. Well, I would hope that wouldn't happen. But, but it would really be good for, I mean, that would be really, really good for viewership. But a lot of neurosurgeons, <laughs> not, you know, you might, you have to bring in another neurosurgeon. And then they'll, then you'll have no problem. Well, I'm gonna just say I'll I'll leave it at let a neurosurgeon I say that. If I, as, as as an orthopedic surgeon, if I you know if I said anything like that, it, it might be my it might, it might be my my last uh, interview. You know, for the sake of time and the audience, you know what? I'll, I'd love to have you back. We should probably like pick like ten articles on different subjects and come back and and discuss them. You know, outside of our fields because I I think it's fascinating. I think people will tune in and and want to know, hey. What are these guys up to? What do they think are things that we should be looking into? Again, we're not not necessarily experts in those fields, but how is it relevant to the things that, you know, kind of we're seeing in life? You know, you've gotten really deep down into this helping people with concussion, helping people with PTSD, um, helping people that have depression and anxiety, and you've developed something called the NeuroGlove which you're going to demonstrate on me. I'm excited about it because I haven't tried it before. And I certainly, if it can help me somehow, it'd be great. I'll use it every single day. But tell me about how you got into this, what kind of brought the idea on, and what it does. Essentially, the idea came from um, looking at some basic science uh, research uh, that was done 10, 20 plus years ago looking at stroke. So as a vascular neurosurgeon, I take care of patients with problems with the blood vessels of the brain. Stroke is indirectly related to that. And I try to stay abreast of the um, literature, including some of the basic science literature. And some amazing work uh, was done looking at mice having a stroke, where it was found that if you stimulated the mouse whisker, the whisker mm. is the most sensitive part uh, on the mouse so that for us, for man, the most sensitive areas, those that have the greatest representation in the brain, really the hand in particular, the thumb, the face to some extent. Um, so, but, uh, in the mouse, it's the whisker. And so it was found reliably and reproducibly that you could limit the size of the stroke, limit the effects of the stroke in mice and even prevent stroke if you started giving them stimulation that type of feedback fascinating early enough um, after you stop the blood supply to the brain and so that suggested i thought the idea that one could do something similar in people who were having a stroke that maybe if you provided sensory stimulation or what we call peripheral somatosensory stimulation mm -hmm. after a stroke that you could get people better. Intuitively, it makes some sense because of the idea that you're stimulating that part of the brain that is um, near the motor area, near movement. Also, you're providing feedback. And again, I love the idea of doing something non-invasive, doing something simple because very hard to believe you're going to hurt anybody doing this. 
And so we came up with the idea for NeuroGlove, which essentially is a device that stimulates the hand and the thumb and the palm where there's tons of, of nerve cells bringing mm-hmm. information up to the brain. We use puffs of air, so totally safe. You know, we're not even talking about electrical stimulation. Right. Um, we're not talking about something that could hurt your hand. We're not talking about something that could cause pressure. And so the first work we did was actually looking at what's called perfusion MRI, looking at the blood flow in the brain. And what we showed was that in some preliminary data, when we when we applied the NeuroGlove, that we increased the blood flow in the brain. And so that was interesting. What we didn't really understand early on was the fact that peripheral sensory stimulation was starting to be found over the last decade by other groups to be beneficial in other conditions. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we found out about was Parkinson's. There's some great work out at Stanford um, where providing stimulation, vibrational stimulation, you can go up mm-hmm. and look at this data, this literature, it's solid literature, um, actually was dramatically improving function in patients with Parkinson's. So that is something that, that, that's being worked on at Stanford, and we actually are going to be doing a study shortly here in the Twin Cities at one of the major Parkinson's centers using NeuroBuff to see if it will be a benefit. Then um, came across some literature showing that topics that we were talking about, PTSD, anxiety, depression, a lot of other mental health wellness issues may be driven by a, an abnormality of sensory processing. Uh, in the brain. And so this is literature going back to the 1970s. Again, I think this is a theme that probably yes. you're finding and I'm yes. finding is that people have known about this. Absolutely. You didn't know what to do about it. And because it didn't fully, it wasn't a pill, wasn't a drug. You know, it wasn't being you know, necessarily endorsed by some big company, big pharma. Marketed. Whatever, marketed properly. It kind of fell by the wayside. But all of a sudden we're discovering, hey, you know, this fits with some of the work that's already been done. And so we actually have done a number of clinical trials now, amazingly demonstrating statistical significant improvement in anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms. There are depression scales out there. These are standardized scales. Test people at the beginning, weekly, at the end of the trial, dramatically better. PTSD is another good example. And so, again, I'm not sophisticated enough to tell you at the cellular level what we're doing. We can start to speculate what's happening. But again, it's speculation. But what I can tell you is that we have non-invasive technology that really should be, you know, as best as we can tell, completely benign right. and, and harmless. And the patients are improving, including, I think what's been dramatic for me is some very skeptical patients. I love the skeptical patient. You know, the people who've been in our trial, some of them come in and Quite honestly, um, you know, God bless them. I think they, they wanted to be in the trial to get to get paid because, you know, we pay pay the volunteers for their time. They have to use the device. Stand, yeah, just standard yeah. standard stuff. You gotta get you gotta get them in and see what's going on. Right. And so um I have patients who are who we've had people come in and you know, when you enter them into the trial, they're like, um, I've tried everything. I, I'm on medicine, I'm on this, I've tried cognitive behavioral therapy. I've tried yoga. I've tried this. I've tried that. Nothing works for me. This isn't going to work. I was like, that's fine. As long as you're willing to do it and, you know, and give it a try and give us your honest feedback. That's what we're looking for. And then, you know, they come back at one week to do their first, you know, one week follow-up after they've been using it for a week. And they, and they go like, 
you know, I don't know. I feel a little better, but it's probably just because the weather's nice outside. There's been a lot of sun. I'm feeling a little better. You know, I'm having a good week. And then week two, they're like, you know, I'm a little better. I'm not sure why. I'm like, okay, that's great. All we're asking you to do, you know, here's the 20 point scale. You just fill it out. You just answer these questions and tell us. Week four, it's the end of the trial. They're like, how do I get one of these? You know, and you feel really good about it. You know, you feel like, okay, there's something, there's something going on. Love it. Right. And that's happened a number of times now. And, and, and that's a great feeling. Even some of these people are like, I'm not willing to admit that this is what's doing it, but I don't want to stop using it either. There's clinical evidence of improvement. Correct. Um, achieving statistical significance. Um, we're certainly not hurting anybody um, doing it. Uh, they feel better. And since we have an underlying understanding of what might be happening, I think the future work is to try to better understand, you know, is it mitochondria? Is it right? Is it neurotransmitter? Is it both? Is it a combination? But in the meantime, um, that's kind of what brought me um, to the point where doing what we do can take you in one of two directions. Shut it off and tell the patient, okay, goodbye. Correct. Or you can say, you know, let, let's try something. Let's, you know, maybe, th- maybe this is something that would help you. Maybe not. Again, if you're talking about something super invasive, like putting... 16 electrodes completely different into someone's brain. Yep. I get very, very nervous about that. And rightfully so, because it only should be used for the, like, the, you know, if it really needs to be used, as right. you know, like the tools we have, right? As right. You start looking at some of these options, which are grounded in basic science, and you could hypothetically understand how it might work. And then you have emerging evidence that people are being helped. Let's just say it that way. Um, why wouldn't you be, you know, if you're, if you put yourself in the shoes of that patient, why wouldn't you be enthusiastic about exploring it further? If the risks are so low, why would our medical community and people themselves not be open, you know, to these things? Some some interesting stuff on like you talk about, we don't know how it works. Patients that had stroke, right? Or and or like other other major things when they are have a good social network, it's incredible how much better they do. It's like dramatic. What if, for example, you have a patient that has a concussion or whatever it is, one one of these things we talked about, and you fix their nutrition, which then fixes their microbiome, right? And then you add on things like the NeuroGlove, which stimulates certain pathways that, that, that you know, are going to help them. You make sure they have a strong social support system, right? You start adding other modalities like red light therapies and other things. What happens if we put all of this together? What, what happens? I am obsessed with getting answers to this. And we need to start looking at on a larger scale, thousands and thousands of patients. Now with the help of AI, you can say, you know what, if you do this and this and this and this in these doses, maybe that is kind of for this type of patient, you know, that that's gonna help them, you know, going forward. And so on that note, since I'm really excited now about the NeuroGlove and trying to put it all together, I'm gonna see if I can get this up on the table and not be too clunky, I know this part. I'll move my microphone here out of the way, and then I'll give this to you, and you can tell me how should I position this. Okay, best. 
So let's do this. And so here's a present for you, which you can keep. Okay. So this is a mask that you can wear. So the mask I'm saying, is to increase the stimulation. Yeah. Because as you know, you're taking out right. the stimulation. Yeah, we do the same same thing that we do with the treatments because you just get better stimulation. Right. And so this is actually the clinical prototype that we've been using in our clinical trials. We have a the, the, the new design, which will include um, the ability to... to change out between this chamber, which is the more aggressive uh, chamber, and which is really appropriate for somebody who can put their hand in like this. And you can see the multiple air hoses and yeah. the apertures here for the delivery. Some people, what we found is that people after stroke, for example, and some people who have other neurologic issues, can't easily keep their hand in this position. And so initially for some of those folks, you were able to Put it on its side or even just take and take this out or even put it like that but we're going to have the option um, at this point of either using the chamber or uh, having a quick detach of this and then attaching it to a device that looks more like a glove where the person actually puts their hand in and it's palm opposed and it's a very lightweight um, material so that they can sit with it this way that way or to the side but um, so should I put it, my hand in here? So you can put your hand in, although it should ideally be palm up, palm because the majority yeah. of, the se- of the majority of the sensation is going to be coming in. And if you put it further in, so that's the concept. And then what what happens is that um, well, you know what we don't have is gloves. Oh, so that will <laughs> that will help. But we have. Basically, in the back, we have an on-off switch. We'll okay. Just, we turn off and on. And is is, is and the plug in your car? Uh, the plug is probably at home. No, but this is, I mean, I, I, yeah. I understand. And now, now I, you know. And then I, there's a regulator on the back, right. which allows you to vary the, first of all, the duration of treatment and also the intensity of treatment. So that um, some people will want uh, a lower amount of air pressure. Okay. And some people will want more. And so there's a rheostat essentially on the back then you can set it for um, a certain amount of time. And the uh, air puffs are actually generated randomly because as you could probably assume, the brain learns quickly. So if it was every three seconds, it would start to lose the stimulatory input. And so there are different settings in terms of changing it up, some more frequent with greater pauses and some having um, more intense, but they're all randomly generated. So really a simple concept Interestingly, based on very, you know, basic research, um, and that's uh, that's the idea. Oh, that's great. I uh, I was really hoping that <laughs> I was going to get a, a just this. You have a three pot. You have a three pot. Yeah. Plug? I, I I was I, I was just I was ready to go. I was going to jump in the uh, in the uh, in the red green light bed after getting my 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 palm massage here, and and uh, man, I was going to write a book. Okay. This afternoon, and and just ready to go. But no. But thanks for, thanks for showing this. I love this idea. I think it, it's brilliant. And and like many things, it's it it just makes so much sense. It's interesting because the way you brought up the conversation about having things that we kind of know work, but it kind of dies on the vine. There's a doc here in town. Because we are we are very big with doing exercise under oxygen therapy, 
called EWOT. It's a really interesting concept. It's kind of like hyperbaric chamber, except you're pulling in the oxygen ex uh, as opposed to pushing it in. But that being said, I sat down with, with him just, just to have lunch. We were just going to have a nice lunch and catch up. And I said, oh, this is one of the things that, you know, we're doing, especially, you know, with our athletes or people that are recovering from injury. He's like, yeah, I was doing that for a long time. I didn't even know there was research on it. It's along that same line. There's just a lot of people that, that have brought these things forth and have treated them on a micro scale, but now trying to get this message out on a much larger scale so that we start doing the research and start doing it on the bigger scales and, and look at all these methods and see how, how do they all fit together. It's all one big puzzle. And, you know, if we could be just a small piece of that puzzle, you know, we, we, we've, we've won for the, for the, for the people, for the, you know, for the, for the system. So really, honestly, this has been an amazing, you know, conversation. And I think obviously we can go on for, you know, for a long, long time. How um, can people learn more about you and how can they learn more about the NeuroGlove and some of the things you're doing with that? First of all, you can go to the website, um, www.neuroglove.net, and we have some uh, patients, uh, you know, people who've tried it talking about their experience. You can also um, get a synopsis of some of the research that we've done. Multiple um, peer-reviewed published papers now um, from some of these clinical trials that we've been doing, and you can see the numbers for yourself. You know, people can make their own judgments. Right. And there's um, also kind of a breakdown about, you know, where, where things are headed uh, with NeuroGlove. More about me through um, um, the practices website, Midwest Spine, um, through Brain Aneurysm Center website, um, which has been my website for a while. Um, you can get information that way. Um, but yeah, I think the, you know, one of the nice common things between you and me is that um, we're happy to talk to people. You know, we, we talk to our patients, we talk to people who, you know, we get contacted all the time. Probably yes. now you're getting contacted about hypercharge and about some of the work that you're doing. I get you know, through social media, yes. through, you know, LinkedIn, um, people sending stuff all the time. Um, we have people who want to get the device or want to be in the clinical trials, um, people who want to just talk about neurosurgery, people who, um, you know, have a problem with an aneurysm and they're in Europe and they just want some advice. And uh, I enjoy it. I mean, I like talking to people. And this is a good example of that. It's been great. I agree. I love talking to people. Um, I'll say that uh, being much more active on LinkedIn with this with this project. And there's docs reaching out. I mean, I just actually somebody texted me this morning and said, hey, how are things going? I was like, I'm just kind of blown away. Are you trying to reach out to the medical community and 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 let them know? sort of directly or indirectly through LinkedIn that that there's a reason, there's research behind this stuff. This is this is real. If you think the general public is skeptic, right? The physician our physician colleagues are very skeptical that any of this stuff can work for whatever reason. So how how are how are you going to get around that that issue? What you're saying, I, I mean I think, you know, in part is that there's tremendous skepticism within the traditional medical community, and some of it is unjustified. Some of it may be justified because right. there have always been snake oil sales. At 100%. Right? And so because serious physicians who went to medical school 
and aren't just trying to make a buck off of a gimmick have not waded into the areas of holistic medicine before, I think it's been appropriate to be skeptical. So one of our jobs is to really look at these options, devices, whether it's red light therapy, whether it's NeuroGlove, whether whatever it is, and to be honest and fair about it. You don't want to recommend snake oil. You don't want to recommend something that isn't going to help somebody um, at all. Uh, and so a lot of it is about getting evidence. So for us, we put a lot of energy, effort, and you know financial resources into doing objective clinical trials. This has so far resulted in a variety of peer-reviewed publications. Again, you can look at the data. You know, we have the, the original surveys filled out by the patients, as I said. We have the individual comments from the patients. You know, like here's a good example. We have, you know, one woman in the trial who said that she normally, for her anxiety and depression, which she had both relied, relies on medicine. And she said when she was having a bad day, Instead of taking medicine, she would try the device and it would get her by and she didn't have to take the medicine. I don't feel as though it was my fault that for years I wasn't really thinking along these lines. We're not trained that way. Right. We're just not trained that way to think that and, way. And, and there's a lot of people that want us to do other things. Right. You know, I'm a neurosurgeon. I can be making money operating on patients and I could just do that all day, every day. Um but I'm looking at other ways to help people, as we talked about, when they tell me, when at the end of that journey, at the right. end of the process, you finished instrumenting the spine and your patient's x-ray looks good. And they tell you, but I'm not where I want to be. You can say goodbye and send them off to um, a physical therapist or a chiropractor who, by the way, I think represent an entirely an entire class of professionals who have been... I don't want to say stigmatized. They have been but underappreciated, marginalized, or underappreciated. I've actually spoken at the Minnesota Chiropractic right. Association, and I and and again, they're like anything, right? Just like in medicine, there's a range. But right? how many people come to you as a physician, and probably more than even to me I'm, as a cranial, as a brain surgeon? But how many people come to you and tell you that they went to the chiropractor and they feel much better? So many. Right. So how many times are you going to go like, well? It's all placebo. They don't know what they're doing because that's how we were trained, right? So you can bury your head in the ground and you can say like, okay, that's pseudoscience. None of it is real um, unless we're actually operating on your spine and putting screws into your spine or doing or taking out discs or things like that. It's not real. Or you can accept the fact that what we do plays a significant role, but there are a lot of very good chiropractors out there, and I don't know what they do exactly, but patients feel better when they leave the chiropractor's office. They're improving. So either you want to include that, incorporate that in some way, or you're just going to ignore it and put your head in the sand. I, I started hearing those stories right when I started. I had the opportunity to become really good friends with a uh, an osteopathic doctor who did a lot of manipulation. So it was early in my practice that I started talking to people about chiropractic medicine and people were doing well. So I've been referring people to chiropractors for a long time. I just always ask the one question whenever anybody tells me anything about what they're doing. Is it working? Well, doctor, I've been there for three months. I have no improvement. In, but then that's not what you should be doing. Let's look at these other 15 things that, you know, we could be doing for you. If I say to them, hey, how you doing with that? 
oh my God, I feel great every time my chiropractor, they take care of me. I'm like, that's fantastic. Continue with your chiropractor. Maybe we'll add these exercises or, or hey, I'll talk to them about weight loss or whatever. I think as, as just the medical community, we just have to open our minds and really get our colleagues on board to just looking at things. And I want to know what they're doing too. I want to know if, if, you know, if Dr. Smith down the road is doing some amazing, innovative thing that is like dramatically improving his patients. I want to know about that. Send me the science. If it works, I'd like to offer that to my patients. Would you, do you, would, is that about right? I think that's absolutely correct. You know, because I'm treating really difficult problems and oftentimes where we don't have a good solution for it, um, one of the things that I've done is at times try something innovative. You know, try something that nobody had ever done before. Yes. Because it's hard, but it's also a privilege to be in a position where the patient's going to die if you don't do anything. So you can either throw your hands up and do nothing, or you can try something. Now, we're talking about, to some degree, sometimes you know, more in right. invasive or dangerous things. But it's kind of that same concept, ultimately. It's the same idea, you know, a willingness to try something new or to think about it in a different way, open your mind, you know, whatever term you want to use. Well, thanks. This, is, this has been amazing. I just want people out there to know that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, physicians and, and non-physicians, all types of medical providers, so many great people out there, and I'm meeting more and more of them that are really trying to help them. And so for those people that are suffering from concussion and PTSD, and it's really refractory or horrible anxiety, and there's great people out there working on the, the, this stuff. And hopefully we can be vessels to get this information out there and just make a difference uh, in people's lives. So thanks again for coming on. It's, it, it, it's been great. And uh, I'll see you this week at the hospital. Okay. Sounds right. good. Awesome. Yeah.